Good morning, everybody. Good morning. We are super thankful for our, our music team. Uh, thank you guys for leading us in worship. That, that last song reminded me of how much we miss Luke when he's out of town. And uh, we will miss Luke when he and his family reloc relocate to Colorado. Um, during that transition, just before the chorus, I'm used to Luke going, duh, 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 duh. and it just wasn't there. We'll, we'll miss him. Well, we're in Romans chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 24. And briefly, I'll remind you of what we saw last time when we looked at verses 1 through 10 in Romans chapter 11, um, after the Apostle Paul has spent so many chapters uh, detailing the, the gospel, what is the Christian message. And the, the Christian message is not turn over a new leaf, be a good person, you're, you're good and valuable and God smiles on you, whatever. That's not the Christian message. The Christian message is that we're all under sin. We all deserve to be condemned. We all deserve to come under the wrath of God because of our wickedness. And um, we're all without excuse. And yet God devised a way by which he can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He sent forth his son. And uh, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He satisfies the wrath of God in our place by absorbing God's wrath in our place. And um, after showing that um, that's really what the law and the prophets were all about, then Paul ends up tur turning his attention to the people of Israel, the, the Jews, because uh, if the Christian gospel is really what the Old Testament was always about from the beginning, then why did the Jews, by and large, reject it? So in chapter 9, he talks about that, and he talks about the sovereignty of God, and in chapter 10, he talks about, it's, about how it's the same gospel message for both Jews and Greeks. Um, they need to hear the word of God, and then in response to the word of God, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved no matter who you are. Then in chapter 11, Paul zeroes in again on the question of um, the, the Jews. And in verses 1 through 10, last time, um, we saw his argument that although Israel as a whole had rejected the gospel, and they had. Yet a remnant was left. We saw that in verses 5 and 6. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And because of that remnant, then therefore God had not cast off his people. 
So Israel's rejection in verses 1 through 10 was not complete. It was not total. There, there was still a remnant, including the Apostle Paul himself, who was a Jew. And in these verses, verses 11 through 24, the main point is that Israel's rejection is not final. So verses 1 through 10, Israel's rejection of the gospel is not complete. And now today, Israel's rejection of the gospel is not final. That, so that's what we're going to be looking at. So as uh, Paul now uh, continue, continues on with this discussion, he's going to be talking about engrafted branches. And you'll, you'll see what I mean by that as we go on. So first of all, let's notice verses 11 and 12 where Paul describes to us God's purpose for Israel's stumbling. God's purpose for Israel's stumbling. Notice how he begins the section, another one of his patented rhetorical questions. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Their stumbling here is their apostasy as a people, their rejection of the gospel of grace. And when Paul uh, says in order that they might fall, he means fall permanently fall finally, fall irrevocably. And why would Paul ask a question like that? Well, it's because of what he has already said in the preceding verses. Yeah, for example, in verses 7 through 10, uh, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And then David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Judgment from God. Retribution because of their apostasy, their hardness of heart, their rejection of the gospel. Um, that's why he asks this question, did the Jewish people, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall finally? And uh, Paul answers his rhetorical question, by no means. No. And he describes God's purpose. Rather, through their trespass, their trespass being their rejection of the gospel, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. That's a very interesting statement from the apostle Paul. God had a purpose in Israel's rejection of the gospel. And it's a two-part purpose, according to Paul. 
Number, number one, Israel's fall meant that the gospel would go out to the Gentiles. And we, we read a lot about that. Here's just a couple of representative passages. Jesus said that this would happen. Jesus said to a group of Jews in Matthew 21 and verse 23, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And then uh, not too long ago, we, we saw this in Acts chapter 13. If you'll turn there with me to Acts chapter 13. And here we see Paul and Barnabas in uh, Antioch in Pisidia. And notice verses 44 through 46. As they're preaching the gospel, and it was Paul's pattern when he went into a new city he would seek out Jews. And he did the same thing in Antioch and Pisidia. And so in verse 44 of Acts chapter 13, we read, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Isn't that interesting? Paul says that part of God's purpose in the Jews' rejection of the gospel is that the Jews would eventually become jealous of the Gentiles and they would come to the Lord. Well, that time had not yet arrived here and the Jews were filled with jealousy because of the crowds that were responding positively to the gospel preached by Paul and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside. That's their trespass that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 11. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So that's when this happened in real time. So that was the first purpose, God's purpose for the Jews' rejection of the gospel. Israel's fall meant that the gospel went to the Gentiles. But then secondly, Paul mentions here, uh, in Romans chapter 11, so as to make Israel jealous. It's very interesting. In other words, uh, over time, as Jews witnessed Gentiles coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, turning from their idolatry, turning from their sins and putting their trust in, in Jesus. And then, with the teaching of the Apostle Paul, becoming children of Abraham, spiritual offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, professing their faith in the God of the Old Testament, then the Jews would observe their peace and joy that the Gentile believers 
had in their Christian faith, the very peace and joy that the, the Jews lacked. And then that would make them jealous. And that's instructive to us. So think about Paul himself. Before he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was an enemy of Jesus, an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of the church. And he was miserable. He was filled with rage, with hate, with anger. And it was from that kind of disposition that he tried to destroy the church. And then in contrast to Saul of Tarsus, this, man, this religious man filled with rage, there were believers like Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was the first Christian martyr in the New, the new Covenant age. And Saul of Tarsus witnessed Stephen's martyrdom. And Stephen was stoned to death. And Saul... Uh, guarded the coats of those who threw stones at Stephen until he died. And Stephen, until his dying breath, witnessed for Jesus. Jesus even gave him a vision of himself in glory. Stephen was able to, to stare into heaven and see Jesus not sitting on his throne, but standing, ready to receive Stephen after he would breathe his last. So Stephen was not hurling insults at the Jews who were throwing rocks at him. Imagine that, by the way. Imagine people throwing rocks at you, stones at you, because of your faith, until you would die. And, and eventually, receiving those stones are going to injure you to the point where you're not going to respond very much. But I can just imagine that when, that, when the stone throwing starts and you feel the first one or two, it would be really natural to respond with, with anger and rage. Hey, what are you doing throwing rocks at me? You, bleh. But that's not how Stephen reacted. He witnessed for Jesus. And the reality is that Stephen wasn't the only Christian martyr who died in that way. Filled with hope and joy. Not because it's fun to die, but because Christians know that death is not the end. It's only the door through which we pass into eternal glory in the presence of God. Amen. And Christians even count it a privilege to be able to suffer for Jesus' sake and to, to witness for Jesus in that way. So on the one hand, you have Jews like Saul of Tarsus filled with rage, no peace, because they had turned the law of God into a stairway to heaven 
which it was not designed to do. And the more they tried to work their way into heaven, the more their, their consciences were convicted that there's more and more and more sin. It's never going to work. So there's no peace, there's no joy, there's no happiness, there's no contentment. Constant striving, constant guilt, constant anger and hardness of heart. Compared to the peace and joy in believing that Christians experience. I think that's what Paul had in mind that as Jews would, would see that, it would provoke them to a holy kind of jealousy and envy and that they would come to the Lord themselves. And isn't that challenging? That that's the kind of witness, the kind of testimony that we're supposed to present. Christians are not supposed to come across as miserable folks. Um, sad folks, but those who are filled with peace and joy and, and love, so that people would, would ask us the reason for the hope that's, that's within us. That's what Paul seems to be saying. No, notice what else he says, moving on to verse 12. Now, if their trespass, again, their trespass being their um, rejection of the gospel by and large, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 12 is really important, but we don't have a, a lot of time to stay here for too long, but... I do want you to notice the word world there. And I'm just pointing this out because uh, sometimes when we look at passages like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And folks sometimes assume that means, oh, well, Jesus died for and is trying therefore to save every single person Person, every single individual soul in the entire world. I just want you to take note that that's not how the New Testament uses the term world. So here in Romans chapter 11 and verse 4, the term world is synonymous with the word Gentiles. Do you see that? If their trespass means riches for the world... And their failure, so failure and trespass are uh, synonymous. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles. So Gentiles is another way of expressing world, the world. The world is another way of describing the, the Gentiles. Instead of Israel, instead of just the Jews, there's the world, all of the nations of the earth. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 12, how much more will, will their full inclusion mean? 
Full inclusion here is the same word that Paul uses in Galatians 4.4. It can be translated fullness. So in Galatians 4.4, Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Here in Romans 11.12, it's the fullness of the Jews. It means a total quantity with a view towards completeness, full number, full measure. And the idea is that God still has a remnant of Jews, not just in Paul's time, but on into the future until that number of this remnant is complete. It's it's full. That's what Paul is saying. And he's going to come back now and repeat this throughout the passage. But before we, we move on, just pause and reflect on the fact that um, God had a purpose for Israel's stumbling. When Israel rejected the gospel, it didn't catch God by surprise. God didn't go back to plan B. He didn't have to go back to the drawing board. Didn't have to ask anybody else's counsel. This was God's purpose from the beginning. And it's a reminder for us that God has a purpose for everything. It's just what Romans 8.28 says. And we know that all things work together for good to those who are the, the call, to those who love God, to those who are the called according to purpose. God has a purpose for everything. And even though in our mind's eyes it looks like things are falling apart and things are dark, in the case of the first century, the Jews had rejected their Messiah. Even that was according to God's purpose. Things are never so dark and bleak and foreboding so that there is no more purpose. God is always on his throne. He's always working things according to the counsel of his will. God always has a purpose, and it's good. So God's purpose for Israel's stumbling. Then Paul goes on to describe the the holiness of Israel, the Jewish people, in verses 13 through 16. And he does it through a, a metaphor, a word picture. So verse 13. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, so non-Jews, and in, in particular, um, non-Jews within the church in Rome. I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then, I, um, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. Paul was a, um, an apostle to the Gentiles. We, we saw that taking place in real time in Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 9, 
we read how Jesus had saved Paul for that purpose. And so in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, Jesus said to Ananias, Go, for he, Saul of Tarsus, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. That was the mission that Christ had called Paul to. And then he says, I magnify my ministry. That's not in the same spirit that a lot of people today say something like that. I, I magnify my ministry. Aren't I a great minister? Isn't this ministry that I have built great? That's the spirit of this age, I fear. But that's not what Paul is saying. I magnify my, my ministry. He, he's basically saying, I love the work to which Christ has called me. I love this gospel which came to me in power, this gospel which I am, I am now preaching to the Gentiles, this gospel which multitudes of Gentiles in every city in which I go are believing and being saved by. I love that. I magnify this ministry of preaching the gospel. I'm enthusiastic about it. That's what Paul is saying. And he continues, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. So here's this idea again. And thus save some of them. Paul knows it's not up to him to save people. See Romans chapter 9. But still, insofar as God has called us to preach the gospel, and he has, see Romans chapter 10, then when God uses us, and when God saves through us, it's okay to use language like Paul did. That I might thus save some of them. 1 Corinthians 9.22, he used the same kind of language. I have become all things to all men that I might by any means save some. So Paul wanted to make sure that in his ministry, he made the gospel really clear and really attractive. Not attractive in a worldly sense, but attractive nevertheless, so that the Jews would become jealous, envious, and be saved. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, again, here's this synonymous use of the word world. Here, the world means all the nations of the earth, not just the Jews. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So here, Paul is looking into the future and he is, he is anticipating, he is seeing through the eye of faith this acceptance 
on the part of Israel of the gospel. And he compares it to life from the dead. In his day and age, because the Jews had largely rejected the gospel, Israel was dead. But at some point in the future, that which is dead is going to come to life. There's going to be this dramatic change in Israel's acceptance of the gospel. There's going to be more than just a remnant, isolated uh, individual souls here and there. But Israel is going to come to life. That's what Paul anticipates. So here's now the figure of speech that he uses, the, um, the metaphor. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And this is an illustration that he borrows from uh, the Old Testament, from Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 through 21, which describes an offering to the Lord of a cake prepared from the first fruits of grain, and then that would be worked into the dough. And the idea is the, the first fruits are holy, the, um, the, the whole thing is holy. And what Paul seems to be getting at is that um, since God has always had a remnant chosen, uh, chosen by grace, and that was true in the Old Testament. Remember, Elijah thought he was all alone, but no, God had a remnant then. And that continued until Paul's very day. What, he, what Paul is trying to point out is that it's not just the remnant of Israel that's holy. But Israel as a people, Israel as the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that group is still holy. Holy there doesn't mean saved. The, the Jews are not automatically saved, just like Saul of Tarsus was not saved. He, he needed to be saved by Jesus. But they're, they're holy in the sense of being set apart by God for God's holy purpose. They're, they're holy in the sense, uh, in, in the same way in which the spouse, the unbelieving spouse of a Christian in 1 Corinthians 7 is holy. In other words, the, the marriage is, is legitimate in the same sense in which children born to a, a mixed marriage in that way are, are holy, not necessarily saved, but, but legitimate, not viewed by God as born out of wedlock in that sense. That's the sense in which Paul means that they are, are holy. Um, the, the branches... This whole tree, the root is holy. The whole tree, including the branches, are holy. In other words, Israel 
remains God's special people. God's not done with Israel. So, the holiness of Israel. Then Paul goes on and develops even further this metaphor of the tree, an olive tree. God's olive tree in verses 17 through 24. But if some of the branches were were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, and we'll, we'll come back and see what Paul says to them, but remember who he's talking to. He's, verse 13, he's speaking to Gentiles, non-Jews in the church. And, and he's telling these non-Jews, these Gentile believers, that the branches in God's olive tree were broken off. That's referring to Jews who rejected the gospel. They were broken off, and you, non-Jews, Gentile believers, you were grafted in among the others. And now you share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. That's how grafting works. You, you cut a little slit in the trunk of the tree, and you, you uh, take a branch or a shoot of another kind, and you stick it in that little slot that you cut, and you fasten it in place somehow, and the sap, the nourishment, the life of the tree ends up flowing through that grafted-in branch, and then the branch partakes of the life of the tree, if, if it works. But of course, when God grafts, it always works. But this is the metaphor, the illustration, the word picture that Paul is using. And, and why is he wanting these Gentile believers to think of them themselves that way? Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches that seemed to have been a problem in the church in Rome. The non-Jewish believers were arrogant with respect to their thinking about the Jews. Oh, the Jews rejected Jesus. We believed we're superior than, than them. Somehow or another, they looked down their noses at the Jews. They were arrogant towards the Jews. Paul says, don't be arrogant toward them. Remember who they are and who you are. So then he continues in verse 18. If you are, you're a wild um, branch, an unnatural branch that's been grafted in to the original tree. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, if you are arrogant, 
Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Gentiles will always be dependent on God's gracious dealings with Israel. And remember, when we say Israel, we don't mean the modern nation state of Israel. We mean the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a promise to Abraham that through his seed, all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he was going to grant Abraham a seed that no man can number. And then the New Testament tells us that Abraham's ultimate seed is Jesus himself, not just physical offspring. But nevertheless, we as believers have been grafted into the tree, God's olive tree, and we're supported by the root. God's gracious promises to the Old Testament patriarchs. We're supported by them. But then Paul anticipates an objection. Not sure this would be literally verbally voiced or if this, would, if this is what someone thinks in their hearts. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. The attitude there seems to be, I am the pinnacle of God's redemptive program. Everything that God has been doing up to this point, including his dealings with the Jews, it's really been looking forward to me. Hello, world. And Paul says in verse 20, well, that's true. There, there's a sense in which that is true. You, you can read all of the pages of the Old Testament, not just as the history of the Jewish people, but as your history, your spiritual history. That, that's absolutely true. But remember that they, the physical descendants of Israel, were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So, don't become proud, but fear. That's important to remember. What separates us as believing Gentiles from unbelieving Jews it's faith. It's their unbelief. It's our faith. But the way we've seen faith described by Paul in the book of Romans is that by definition, saving faith, it looks outside of ourselves. It looks beyond us to someone else, namely Jesus Christ, for our acceptance with God. When you're saved by grace through faith, it means not by yourself, not because of you, but because of Jesus. 
That's faith. Arrogance, pride. It's the opposite of faith. It's a contradiction of faith. And so if you find within yourself this spiritual arrogance and pride, then Paul says, be afraid. Be afraid. That's not faith. And furthermore, verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, the physical descendants of Israel, neither will he spare you. So here's a really pointed warning. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Both of these aspects of God are biblical and important. And sometimes I believe that the modern church in particular only talks about the kindness of God. And don't get me wrong, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. I love the kindness of God. All Christians love the kindness of God, but there's more to the story than just the kindness of God. There's the kindness of God and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen in unbelief. But God's kindness to you. And here's the warning provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, if you don't continue in his kindness, if your arrogance and pride continue to show their ugliness, you too will be cut off. That's the warning. And this is a good warning for us, by the way, that we also are called to persevere. There's a number of passages in the New Testament. We're out of time. We're not going to be able to look there. But if you look in 1 Corinthians 15.2, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 6 and 14, those passages and others like them say things like, um, you have saved, you are being saved by the gospel if you continue in the gospel steadfast to the end. Our final salvation, it's dependent on God's grace, but it's conditioned on our perseverance. That's why, that's the weakness of the modern notion of once saved, always saved. That's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. It's true that once a Christian is saved, once a, a person is saved, they are always saved. You can't lose your salvation. It's a gift from God. But that gives a lot of people the mistaken notion that you can coast through the Christian life. And it doesn't matter how you live because at some point 
In your life history, you said a prayer or you responded to an altar call or something like that. This, this is a reminder that we are called to continue in the faith of the gospel, to persevere to the end. Then Paul returns to the subject of the Jewish, pe- the Jewish people in verses 23 and 24. And even they, again the physical descendants of Israel, even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? The harder thing, so to speak, for God to do was to save us, the likes of us. Unnatural branches. It's easier, so to speak, for God just to graft the Jews back into their own olive tree. So beware, spiritual pride. Notice, by the way, as this passage comes to a close, Notice that there is one olive tree that's so important. Have you heard teaching, if you have an old Schofield reference Bible, you have it in black and white. God has one plan for the Jews and another plan for the Gentiles. And then there's different flavors, different stripes of that doctrine But it's so important to remember that in the Bible, there is one olive tree. It it, it began with only physical Jews. But those natural branches were cut off because of their unbelief. And now unnatural branches, us Gentiles, have been grafted in. And it sounds as if God is going to graft back in again those natural branches olive branches at some point in the future, but it's one tree. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 22, Paul uh, speaks to Gentiles, uh, Gentile believers, and he says to them that you were once strangers to the covenants of promise, You you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, But God has saved you. He has brought you near. And in that passage, Paul uses language like he has made us both one, Jews and Gentiles. He has made us both one in Christ. One new man, one body. We both have access in one spirit to the one Father, One household of God, one foundation, one cornerstone, one holy temple in the Lord. Again, Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 22. There's one olive tree. This is what God is doing in the world. Now I'm going to go out on a limb and say, don't worry so much 
about the political machinations in Israel and Russia and China and Ukraine and Washington, D.C. Don't worry about a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. There is a temple being rebuilt from all over the world, and we are its living spiritual stones. We are the temple of the Lord. What God is really doing in the world, the thing that matters the most, is not the world being made safe for democracy. It's not democracy versus totalitarianism. Although sometimes democracies can also be totalitarian. It's not any of those temporary, carnal, earth-bound things. The real thing, the most important thing that is happening in the world today, and it's been this way since the first sinner was saved, God is growing his olive tree. To use Jesus' words, I will build my church. This is what's happening, and this is what should captivate our attention today. So, super briefly, in terms of takeaways, God is not done with the Jews. He's also not done with the world, by the way, either. God is not done. The, the salvation of God, I'm sorry, the long-suffering of God, the patience of God is salvation. The reason why world history continues, the reason why a new day dawned today is because there are still sinners for whom Christ died that God is determined to save. Jews and Gentiles. There are unnatural branches and natural branches that God is still grafting in. That is why time on planet Earth continues. God is not done with the Jews. And then finally, beware of spiritual pride. Beware of spiritual pride. That is... That's the practical reason why Paul writes that passage to the Gentile believers in the church in Rome. Spiritual pride, beware. That is what's at the root of uh, anti-Semitism. Um, hatred, prejudice, bias against the Jews. But if you think about it, pride is at the root of racism, prejudice against other people, groups of any kind. And you know you've been infected with spiritual pride when you think deep down inside, even if you'd never, you'd never say it, but you think that you're more deserving of salvation than those other people. You, you think to yourself, my how lucky, how blessed the kingdom of God is because I have been saved. But then those, there are those other people who don't sound like me, look like me. They don't have the same background as me. 
You just can't imagine God saving people like that. That's spiritual pride. Paul says, beware. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Do you know what the first step in repentance from spiritual pride is? It's coming to Christ in faith to begin with. Coming to Christ is all about renouncing yourself, admitting to God yourself and the world that you're unrighteous, you're sinful. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself or to even tip the scales in your favor. Nothing. You're completely dependent on the grace and mercy of God and you're so thankful that God has provided all that you need to be accepted by him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when you come to Christ, you crucify your pride. And so if this is you, if there's anything in you that thinks that you're a cut above the rest, you're righteous. You're better than that person or the other person. Let that be a warning to you and a, and a signal that you need to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved today. And if Jesus saved the Apostle Paul, he can save you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how your word makes sense out of the world around us. We thank you for what it says about our salvation. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us as believers to sincerely empty ourselves of all traces of pride and live so that Jesus Christ would be exalted. Thank you for saving the likes of us. Would you continue to grow your olive tree in our midst, in our city, and in our land, and around this world? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.